You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn East. In this series, we're following Jesus as He calls us to take on His yoke and experience true discipleship. Good morning. Peace be with you. Before being a pastor, I had a number of jobs. My first real job was as a a sous chef at a restaurant called Burger King. Um, Worked the line and made Whoppers and croissant, which is my dad knew the store manager and he got me a job when I was 15. And at that point in my life, I had just became a Christian and was taking my faith really, really seriously. I was on fire for Jesus. I had my WWJD bracelet on. And it was an interesting experience, to say the least, uh, stepping into the world, you know, out of the shelter of your circle of friends, your high school, into the world. Um, But one of God's gifts to me in that season was one of my coworkers, who was about my age, she was also a believer. And so a lot of times at work, we would talk about our faith, where we're growing. She was from a very, very different background uh, than I was coming from. And I still remember one Sunday afternoon, um, after church, she came into work, and I asked her, like, what did you learn about at church today? And she said, my pastor told this story about when Jesus cast these demons into these pigs, and then they jumped off into, off a cliff into a lake, and they all drowned. <laughs> and I remember saying to her, I don't think that's in the Bible. Uh, pretty sure that's not in there. She was convinced, and I thought, maybe she reads a different Bible at their church. Uh, and we argued back and forth, and finally I was like, okay. Uh, and she told me to go home and look it up. And so that evening I got home from work, opened up my brand new NIV study Bible, turned to Matthew 8, and sure enough, there it was. And I still remember thinking, what in the world is this story? And I had learned, uh, even though I was young in my faith, I had learned, like, when you read, if it doesn't make sense, read a little bit more either before or after, get some context. So you read before, and Jesus is mad at his disciples asking for help in the middle of a storm. And then you go back earlier, and he's telling someone that they're not allowed to bury their dead father. I remember being so confused by this passage, because these three mini-stories tied together, I would argue it's one of the more challenging parts, one of the more bizarre parts of the entire Gospel of Matthew. It's strange and it's unsettling, and I think that's why Matthew tells it. And we're gonna, I'm going to walk through them, and then I want to, near the end, we'll get to why I think Matthew inserts these stories here the way he does. But before we walk through it, I would like to pray and ask for God uh, and his power and God by his spirit to open our eyes afresh to his words that we might receive it. I also want to pray for the Oster Days as we consider sending them out and In light of sending them out, I also want to pray for James and Desiree Westbrook. If you've been around for a while, you know we commissioned them about two years ago, and they're planting a church in Oakland, California, and this morning is their launch service, which is pretty amazing, and so I was texting with them earlier, and I said, hey, me and a thousand of my closest friends, we're going to pray for you uh, this morning before your services start. So will you guys pray with me? Father, we thank you that you're a God who reveals himself and that you are not a God that, that hides, that makes us search and search and search to no avail, but you tell us plainly who you are 
And we know, Lord, your desire is that your name and your fame and your glory would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And so we thank you for Eric and Christy and their faithfulness to go make your name known. We thank you for James and Desiree as they're making your name known in Oakland. And we pray for them this morning that it would be a wonderful morning. We pray for people who are just getting up and debating whether or not they're going to go to church or not, that they would show up. And I pray more than anything, Father, that you would fill James and Desiree's hearts with an abundance of joy and celebration, that where you call, you also provide, and you go before us. I pray for us this morning as we work through this text, that God, by your spirit, you would make yourself known in truer and deeper ways in each of our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So there are three movements, three sections in this text, and we'll look at it under three S's. The first movement is what we could call the story of separation. The second is the story of the storm. And then the third is the story of the swine. And then we'll talk about how they all fit together. But starting with the story of the separation, if you've been with us as we've journeyed through Matthew, you know that the, the picture Matthew's given us up to this point of Jesus is that he's teaching and he's healing, and there are crowds and crowds of people constantly following him, pressing in, looking for his wisdom and his learning and his help. And we don't know how long this has been going on. I imagine weeks, if not months, uh, if not even longer. And the crowd, it just refuses to die down. It continues to grow. And Jesus is exhausted. And so Jesus... He orders his disciples to prep a boat to cross to the other side of the lake, the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And we know that this other side of the lake, that's the bad side of the lake. That's the side of the lake that has pigs, which are unclean animals, and uh, crypts and graveyards, which were unclean, and demoniacs. And so this is a significant shift at this moment that Jesus, he's with the crowds. And what Matthew tells us is at this moment, he begins to separate. And only a few are going to get to follow him on this first intensive training of what it means to be his disciple. And so only a few are going. And as they're prepping to leave, Matthew tells us essentially that two men come to Jesus saying, we want to get on the boat and go with you. We want to go next level in following you. The first we're told as a scribe. Now, a scribe in that day was literally someone who would copy the Torah over and over and over again. So they knew God's word really, really well. Oftentimes they were teacher. teachers. They were men of respect and standing. They had power and influence in the religious establishment. And this scribe, and Jesus often has hard words for scribes, but this scribe comes and says to Jesus, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, different people read into this different things. Some people say that maybe the, the scribe is kind of feeling prideful and like, I am so learned. Here are all of my degrees. Right now, your disciples aren't all that great. They're all blue-collar guys who never been to college, but I'm going to join you, and I'm going to be your disciple. So it might have been a little like, hey, I'm a real blessing for you. Or the scribe might have just been a little naive infatuated with Jesus' teachings, drawn to him. He says, you know what, teacher? I'm going to follow you. Regardless, Jesus' response, it's pretty blunt. He sobers him up by saying, 
Foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. It's as if Jesus is saying to this guy, you need to stop and think this through. I know you want to be my disciple, but being my disciple, the life of being a disciple is a demanding life. Right now, you have a lot of power and influence. You've got good friends. You've got a place in the temple. You follow me. You're not going to have a place to lay your head. And we'll see how true this is for Jesus in the very next story. You can't even get a little bit of shut-eye on the trip across the sea. He's saying to this man, listen, the life of discipleship is demanding. It's not going to be comfortable. And I wonder if this scribe had said, Lord, I will follow you, if he would have gotten a different response. But he doesn't. He, he refers to Jesus as teacher. And in Matthew's gospel, no one in Jesus' inner circle ever calls him teacher except for Judas. Teacher means I have some things I can learn from you. Teacher means I would love to get your input, your advice. But Lord means I'll follow you wherever and whatever the cost. So to the first would-be disciple, Jesus essentially says you're moving way too fast. You've got to think this through. But then, interestingly, the second, Jesus basically says you're moving way too slow. We're told that another disciple, so disciple, said to him, Lord, right title, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And this response just seems really harsh, does it not? <laughs> I would love to follow you. I just need to bury my dad. And Jesus says, let the dead bury their dead. Like that just seems really really confrontational, and it's probably not quite as harsh as it seems on first reading. More than likely, if this man's dad had just died, he wouldn't even be a part of the crowd at this moment. He would be home tending to funeral arrangements and things like that, and so maybe the dad died a little while ago, or some commentators will say that the whole phrase, bury my father, it was really a way of talking about one's family responsibility to look after your parents until their death. And this is a very different thing than it is for a lot of us and certainly for our culture, but in that day, there was nothing more important than family. And maybe the only unpardonable societal sin was dishonoring your family, especially your mother and your father. And so when they got older, it was your job to make sure they were cared for. And so there's a good, sen or a good chance that when he says, let me bury my father, he's saying, let me look after my father until he passes. And so he's not asking Jesus to delay his trip to the other side of the lake by a few hours or a day. He might be asking for a few weeks or even a few months or years. Either way, he comes and he says, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus says, no, there's no time. You need to follow me right now. And so it's a very different response than the first one. But I think it's all wrapped up in that word first. This man says, Lord, let me first and then. Lord, let me first go and bury my father and then I will follow you. And Jesus he basically tells this man, if you come to me with any conditions, 
you're not fit to be my disciple. If you come to me with any, hey, I would love to do this, Lord, but first, you're not prepared to be my disciple. If you're in, you have to be all in, and your allegiance and your commitment to me have to be unwavering. Now, I've read and taught on passages like this for years. When I was younger, especially, I always read between the lines of, like, this was like a Braveheart or Gladiator moment in the text where Jesus is saying, are you man enough to follow me? Like, do you have what it takes? It's the half-room pep talk from the football coach. Like, if you're going to be in, you're all in. Who's with me? But the older I get, the more convinced I am that that's not what Jesus is doing here. He's not giving these men a pep talk. Do you have the right stuff? Are you really man enough to follow me? I think what Jesus is doing is he's trying to warn them. He's saying, listen, unless you have an unwavering commitment to me, or at least desire to have an unwavering commitment to me above all else, unless you have that, you will never make it as my disciple. Not because Jesus is necessarily going to kick you out, but because the life is just too hard. And that's what the rest of these stories tell us. A life of discipleship means a life where God is going to make demands on your life that are very, very difficult. He's going to disrupt your plans like Jesus does with this man. Opposition's going to come and bear down on you like a weight. Persecution will be like a heat. That unless your commitment is to him above all else, you will wilt under that heat. So Jesus, he's trying to tell us here, a life of discipleship is a demanding life. It will disrupt your life. And whether you love what he's saying here or you hate what he's saying, at least you have to appreciate his candor. Jesus is not, he is not begging people to come follow him. You know, I get a crazy amount of emails uh, from church marketing companies. Here's how you can grow your church if you do these or preach this sermon series. No one has ever said to grow, the way to grow your church is to preach on these texts. And Jesus didn't seem to be all that concerned with the numbers of people that were following him, but the hearts of people who followed him. And we'll see how true this is and how challenging this is in the second story, the story of the storm. Jesus, we don't know. We don't know what happened to those guys. We're not really given an indication that they responded positively, so they probably stayed on the shore. But Jesus and his disciples, they get into the boat, it's a six-mile journey across the Sea of Galilee to the bad side of the lake. And Matthew tells us in verse 24, And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. Now we know that at least a few of Jesus' disciples, they were fishermen, and they spent their life on this water. So this must have been some crazy storm. They're getting swamped by the waves. They're terrified and freaking out. And where is Jesus at this moment? He's asleep. I think it reveals his humanity, that he's just utterly exhausted from nonstop ministry for weeks and months. But it's also a bit unsettling. I mean, imagine being these disciples. You have to... 
Let the dead bury their own dead. Hate your father and mother. Foxes have holes. If you're going to be in with me, you got to be all in. And so they're like, we're all in. They hop in the boat. They get in the boat. Jesus is sleeping. And meanwhile, this horrific storm whips up on the lake. And it says they're being swamped. I don't know if you've ever been in a boat when waves come in over the side or over the bow, but it is utterly terrifying. And so even these experienced fishermen with Jesus, who's snoring in the back of the boat, they respond by freaking out. And that doesn't seem like that unreasonable of a thing to do in that situation. So they went to him and they woke him and they said, save us, Lord, we are perishing. And Jesus wakes up, he wipes the sleep from his eyes. <laughs> and then, like in the middle of the storm, he thinks this is a good time to give the disciples a little teaching on faith. He says to them, why are you afraid, oh, you of little faith? And I just imagine the comedy of this scene. Why are you afraid, you of little faith, as waves are literally, like he's getting soaked. They're falling on the bow, and why are you afraid? I've wrestled with this. What did they do wrong? Why would Jesus, because his words are cutting, and in the original language, they're even a little more cutting. Like, why are you acting like cowards? And then little faith is actually one word in the original language. It's like a, a nickname, little faiths. Why are you acting like cowards, little faiths? Well, I think their instinct was right. They go to Jesus in times of trouble, and they call him Lord. Because when your boat's getting swamped, you don't need a teacher, you need a Lord. So their instinct was right. They go to Jesus, they cry out, save us, Lord. But then they take things too far. They say, save us, Lord, we are perishing. They don't go to Jesus saying, we need your help. They go to Jesus saying, we are dying. And so I don't think Jesus is rebuking their fear. I think he's rebuking their terror. I mean, you, you can imagine him saying, you've seen me heal up close and from afar. You've seen me teach. You've witnessed. You've had a front row seat to my power. And all it takes is a little storm. And you've forgotten not only everything I've done, you've forgotten who I am. It's almost like he's hurt, wounded. Do you not know who I am? You think I'm going to let you drown on this boat before our mission is accomplished? Little faiths. Little faiths. I think there's something admirable that the disciples included this account in the Gospels. You know, when they were writing the Gospels, this would have been an easy one to, let's leave that on the cutting room floor. It doesn't really add anything to the story, and it makes us look horrible. Um, but they didn't. Like they all decided, hey, we're going to include this embarrassing episode of doubt. It's helpful to remember that Matthew, he wrote this gospel at least 20 or 30 years after Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father. And the early church at that point is facing hardship, opposition, persecution. Some are being put to death, stoned imprisoned, all sorts of things. And I imagine in that moment, just like often in our lives, 
it would have been easy for some in the church to feel like God was asleep on the job. Like, where are you? We're going through all of this. Are you there? And I think one of the reasons Matthew includes this story in, in his gospel is he wants us to know that even when God's asleep, he's still in control. Even when Jesus was asleep, he was still in control. I mean, think about it. The only way you can sleep in a storm like that is when you know you have everything under your power. And Matthew, he doesn't want us to lose sight of the fact that God is our ever-present help in time of trouble. And even though for us what happens, God can be so faithful year after year, but then all it takes is one storm to roll in and then our memory of his faithfulness fades out. Anyone else like that? God provides so much for so long in so many different ways. And then a new crisis emerges and you think, where is he? He's forgotten about me. Matthew's saying, no, he hasn't. He's in absolute control. And that's where I want you to see that the point of this, this short story, it's not Jesus' rebuke of the disciples. While his rebuke of the disciples is strong, it's not the point. The point is in verse 26 where Matthew tells us, then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. So there are two rebukes in this text, one to the disciples, and then the other is to the weather. Any of you ever been rebuked before? It's not just like a, hey, I've been thinking about rebuke. There's, there's a cutting to it, a strength. And Matthew tells us that Jesus rebuked the weather. I can't imagine what that was like. You as the disciples, he just called you little faiths, and you're kind of licking your wounds like, man, that was a little harsh. And then what does he actually say? We don't know. Stop it. Knock it off. But we're told that the great storm was replaced by a great calm, like a hand from heaven came down and stilled the lake and stilled the wind and the waves. The point of the second story is that even though their faith was little, Jesus still responds and acts on their behalf. And this was astounding to them. The men marveled. What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? Now, the Jewish people were not seafaring people. There were a few fishermen, but they weren't people who grew up on the water. For them, the sea was a terrifying place. It was the place, the source of chaos and evil. I mean, in the book of Daniel, the sea is where the monsters come from. And while there are plenty of people who can do some miraculous works, only God can tame the sea. And that's why they say, who is this man? What sort of man is this? That he's taming the sea. And instead of answering that question, Matthew just lets it hang there, lingering in the air. What sort of man is this? And then he tells us another story, the third story. The one about the demon-possessed swine. This is a narrative from Jesus' life I would love to see Hollywood put together because it just had to be quite a scene. Jesus and his sea-tossed disciples get off the boat and they start wandering into this dark land, Gentile land. And there's a graveyard. And in the graveyard, 
are two men, two demon-possessed men who come storming out, and Matthew tells us that they are blocking the way. So Jesus wants to go to these towns, and these terrifying men are standing there. Mark lets us in on a little more information. He tells us that the townspeople had previously, on multiple attempts, tried to to shackle and chain these men up because they were so strong and the, the demonic power in them was so powerful, but they shattered their shackles and they broke their chains. And so they kind of just lived in the graveyard and no one went near there. And Jesus is going to proclaim the good news to the city and he can't get by these demons. And when they see Jesus and his disciples... These two men are more accurately the voice of spiritual evil that's terrorizing them, cries out, what have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? This is interesting because what Matthew did here is he just answered the question the disciples posed a few verses earlier. What sort of man is this? The disciples don't know how to answer it. The demons do. He's the son of God. And up until this point in Matthew's gospel, Jesus has only been called the Son of God twice. Do you know what those two events were? One was at his baptism, when the Father said, this is my beloved Son. And the other was the temptation, when Satan said, if you truly are the Son of God. And so in Matthew's narrative, everyone else is kind of perplexed. They marvel at Jesus. They're afraid of him. They don't know what to do with this man But the supernatural realm, they know exactly who he is. These demons know that he is the son of God. They not only know who he is, they also know why he's come. And that's to eradicate evil from the face of this earth. And that's why they say, have you come here to torment us before the time? They know where everything's heading. But they're like, we thought we had a little bit longer. What are you doing? This is ahead of schedule. Matthew continues, he says, Now a herd of pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And I had a number of people after the nine ask me, Why did they want to go into the pigs? I have no idea. We're dealing with demons here. But they say, Send us into the pigs. And I have no idea why Jesus said, Okay, go. But he did. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. Like, it's such a bizarre story. And I'm guessing that there is part of the room that you hear this, and you're like, that's my Jesus, that's the power he has over evil. And I'm sure there are others of you in this room, like, do you really expect me to believe in demons? Like, obviously this was... 2,000 years ago, they weren't as advanced as we are. They don't know about personality disorders or whatever. And if that's you, here's what I would say. One, like I can't give a detailed defense of the demonic, but I can say this. The Bible actually makes distinctions between mental illness, physical illness, and demonic possession. They didn't think that every, every form of illness was a demonic possession. Number two, I would also say that while it might be hard to believe in demons, I would say in some ways it's harder not to believe in them. I came across this column in the Washington Post a few years ago by a doctor named Richard Gallagher. He is a board-certified psychiatrist, 
professor at New York Medical College. And through his psychiatric work, he came to the firm conviction that there absolutely are demonic forces in this world. I'll give you just a, a little snippet of what he wrote, but the whole article is worth reading. He says, as a man of reason, I've had to rationalize the seemingly irrational. Questions about how a scientifically trained physician can believe such outdated and unscientific nonsense, as I've been asked, have a simple answer. I honestly weigh the evidence. Anthropologists agree that nearly all cultures have believed in spirits, and the vast majority of societies, including our own, have recorded dramatic stories of spirit possession. Despite varying interpretations, multiple depictions of the same phenomena in astonishingly consistent ways offer cumulative evidence of their credibility. What he's saying is you travel across time, you travel around the world, everyone has these stories. And they just don't go away. And he talks about his own experience of people speaking in multiple languages that they've never spent time learning, extraordinary strength, people with secret knowledge. He's saying, for me, it's the only thing that explains these factors. And there's a quote in Cormac McCarthy's No Country for Old Men where Sheriff Bell says, Satan explains a lot of things that otherwise don't have no explanation. And when you consider the evil in our world and throughout history, throughout the last hundred years, it's hard to blame it all on just nature or nurture. I think one of the reasons we're hesitant to think much about demons is because it's disturbing. And I mean that in the most literal way possible. Like to, to really live and acknowledge and live with the knowledge that malevolent forces are at work in our world, in our lives, in our relationships, it's disturbing. It's unsettling. Like it's a layer of reality that we don't want to think about. And we're not alone in that. Because the account ends Matthew, with Matthew telling us that the herdsmen, the men in charge of watching the pigs who utterly failed at their job, they fled. Going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Now we know from Mark and Luke's account that when the townspeople get there, at least one of the demon-possessed men is dressed where he was naked before. He's clothed, he's in his right mind, and he's eating, and he's actually asking Jesus if he can be his disciple. And so he's experienced this radical transformation. And so the town, they come and they see this, and they don't celebrate. They beg Jesus to leave. If you grew up around church, you probably heard, well, they wanted him to leave because they're pigs. That was where all their wealth was tied up, and like he cost them financially. That might be a part of it. That's not why they beg him to leave. They beg him to leave because they're terrified. That's what Luke tells us. I mean, think about the scene. Hey, something crazy happened with the pigs. Wait, what's going on? You wander up, and you've got, Jesus and his disciples, blue-collar guy, they're weary. He's this, like, for them, Jesus is a guy from the other side of the lake. He's this Jewish, Jewish exorcist where the demon-possessed man's at his feet, 
you look over the, you see that and then you look over here and you see hundreds if not thousands of pigs floating belly up in the lake like whatever just happened here isn't normal and like most people they say you know what we just don't want to think about this can you please just leave and Jesus does and he never returns he never goes back to that side of the lake And that's how Matthew 8 ends. And I've spent all week saying, what? <laughs> what are these stories about? Like, what's the application? Don't get in a boat with Jesus. Stay away from the other side of the lake. Like, what's the application? Here's what I've come up with. The picture that Matthew has given us up to this point in his gospel the picture of Jesus he's given is that Jesus is merciful and he's kind and he's compassionate and he forgives and he loves and he's approachable. And what Matthew does here in the second half of chapter 8, he doesn't contradict that at all. He just expands our understanding of who Jesus is. He seeks to broaden it. Yes, he is kind and compassionate, forgiving, but he is also very powerful. And he doesn't fit in the boxes that we normally have for people. Yes, yes, he's the son of God who's come among us to teach, preach, heal, and forgive. But this Jesus has also come to confront evil at its very source. He's come to lay an ax to the root of evil. John tells us that the reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And Matthew is preparing us to understand what that's going to look like and how that's going to happen. Jesus himself says in John 10 that the thief, the devil, comes only to, to steal, kill, and destroy. And he says, but my mission is to come and bring life and life in abundance. And this is what he's getting at when he tells the, the second would-be disciple, let the dead bury their own dead. What he's saying is the world is spiritually asleep and spiritually dead. And I have been sent to wake people up, and to raise people up. And for me to do that, I have to confront evil at its root. And it's disturbing, and it's disorienting, and it's confusing. But it's not just simply more teaching or moral instruction that's going to put this world back right. Evil, it has to be cut off. And Jesus does, but he doesn't do it the way we think he would. He doesn't he doesn't deal with evil, evil through dramatic displays of power for the most part. The way Jesus confronts and destroys the works of the devil is because at the end of Matthew, Jesus is the one like these demoniacs who are driven out of the city, put in chains, and eventually driven into the tomb. The way Jesus deals with evil is he takes it upon himself, and he takes the goal of evil, which is death, and he experiences that so that we might experience life. That's who this man is. And all of that is so critical to understand if we're going to understand why Jesus is so dogmatic about our allegiance to him. I mean, what we've seen in this text, that the life of discipleship is demanding. It puts a lot of demands on you. You can come as you are, but, 
But when you come, Jesus is going to go to work on you and expect things of you. It's disruptive, changes your plans. It's disorienting. Sometimes you're going to be on a boat. Jesus is going to be asleep, and you're going to be wondering what's going on. And at times, it's downright disturbing. And Matthew and Jesus, they don't want us to be unaware of how hard a life of discipleship is and how confusing You could put it another way and put it like this, that a life of discipleship is chaotic and it's filled with storms. A life of following Jesus is at times chaotic. It's often filled with storms. And I wrote that and I thought, that's a really great application. And then I thought, you know what? Life is chaotic and filled with storms. It's not like if you don't follow Jesus, it's not chaotic. It's not like Jesus and his disciples, that was the only boat on the water that day. But it was the safest boat. And there was no better boat to be in. And the reason Jesus is so dogmatic, he's saying, I want you to make it. And you have these things you want from me, but you have to understand what I am after is nothing less than conquering and defeating evil once and for all, than putting death in its grave. And that's my top priority. And if you come to me and you, you want to be my disciple, but that's not your goal, you're never going to make it. It's going to be too hard. It's going to be too challenging. See, these are words of grace. That's why Jesus he says you have to count the cost of discipleship. As Dallas Willard once said, though, we also need to count the cost of non-discipleship. A lot of those guys never got to get in the boat. They stayed on the shore. They didn't get to see what these men saw. They didn't get to experience the power of God in their life. And so if you're here, wrapping this thing up, if you're here and you're considering Christianity, there's a season, I think, where you can be in the crowd and explore and investigate and ask questions. I think that's great. But eventually the boat's going to push off from the shore and you've got to decide, am I in or am I out? Like Jesus, he always brings people in further. And you got to decide if you want to get into the boat. If you're here and you feel like your faith has stalled out and you feel just very, I don't know, stuck, stalled, feel like there's not a lot of life and vigor in your discipleship, I think a text like this can, if you're able, it can lead you to ask questions like, what demands might God have been putting, might God be putting on my life that I'm not stepping into? How is God trying to disrupt my life that I don't want to be disrupted? Where is he challenging me in ways that I don't want to be challenged? Because I think when God's spirit goes to work on us in those ways and we actively resist, over time, the only way to keep resisting him is just to grow numb. So I think that's a place you can go. Or maybe you're here and you're like, I'm just struggling to keep my head above water. What's the hope in this story for me? The hope for you if you're struggling, the hope for all of us, is the disciples' safety on that boat, it wasn't found in the depth or quality of their faith. Their faith was actually really poor and diluted and contaminated. But their safety, it wasn't dependent upon the depth of their faith, but the object of their faith. 
Jesus says, you guys are being cowards, little faiths. But then what does he do? He steps in and he saves them. And that's our hope. And that's the promise of the gospel. And that's what we celebrate at the Lord's table. We remember Jesus Christ, the night before his crucifixion, took a loaf of bread and broke it, saying, this is my body that's been broken for you. And then he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant or the new promise I'm making. And he encouraged his disciples to do this in remembrance of him and of what he's accomplished for us. So when we come to the Lord's table, we're reminded of his body broken, his blood poured out so that we might be brought in, so that evil might be conquered, and so that death might be done away with. And so as we come and feast, we celebrate. And I think when we come, we come with open hands. And I think a great prayer is, Lord, thank you for your grace. Where might you be leading me this week? If you're here and you're not a Christian and you want to be a Christian, you can pray with me in just a minute. If you're here and you're hesitant, you're on, on the shore, that's okay, but you can't stay there forever. Jesus is calling you to follow him, and it's harder but better than anything else in this world. Let me pray. I'm Kevin Jameson, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com slash east.